0: Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM-LP, Chapel Hill, and Carrboro. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer. And each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net And you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio In Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio NVivo Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISAM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISAM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISAM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio and Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the Center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu GES, and follow them on Twitter at GESCenterNCSU. Finally, Radio En Vivo is proud to welcome another underwriter, GeneCentric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. GeneCentric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio En Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Well, back in late 2017, we had a terrific Radio En Vivo conversation with Dr. Paul Byrne, who is a planetary geologist at NC State University. We left so much material on the table when that hour was up that I've asked Paul to join me again for what I'm calling Paul Byrne 2.0. Paul is a native of Ireland. He has a B.A. in geology and Ph.D. in planetary geology from Trinity College, Dublin. He spent five years with NASA after completing his education and joined the NC State faculty in 2015. Today, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Marine, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences in the College of Sciences at NC State. Paul, welcome back to Radio and Vivo, and thanks for making the trek from Raleigh again to Carborough. Thanks, Ernie. Great to be here. Uh, I would like to start our uh, conversation today. I, I don't usually like to go into things that kind of date shows, as it were, but we find ourselves this morning uh, having just heard uh, the breaking news uh, overnight that uh, Professor Stephen Hawking died, uh, and I, I would like just to get get your comments about that.
1: Sure. I think this man has an enormous and incredible legacy. Um, he is one of the foundational members of, 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 of He's a, his contribution to society is, is immeasurable. He has, I think, instilled an interest in popular in, in physics in terms of popular science and people, uh, unlike really anyone else, with the exception perhaps of Carl Sagan. Uh, not only his contributions to physics itself, because he was a hardcore physicist, he got his PhD at Cambridge, he, he taught there, but he he opened the public's eyes and imagination to what we see in the universe and what the foundational questions of where we've come from, where we're going, what is the fate of the universe, How did all this get started? He published his famous book, A Brief History of Time. It came out first in 1988. Uh, so 30 years ago this year, and I think that really introduced people to these ideas that they'd never thought of before, or if they had, figured it was the domain of elitists in universities, and he made it accessible to people. And it was a book I read as a kid. I read it several times since then. Um, I know people who have gone to study physics, whether they remain as physicists or they go into different aspects of industry. They reference that book as one of the, f- the things that got them inspired in the first place. Sure. His contribution, I think, his greatest contribution, his legacy, is is making this material accessible to the general public far more than his extremely useful contributions to physics itself.
0: Excellent. Well, it's, it's uh, waking up to a different world. You know, now that he yeah. is gone.
1: Absolutely. I think as I say, his legacy will long outlast him. And I think the the, the contributions he've made have really helped shape our understanding of, of physics, of the universe, of how it formed, of how everything from the matter which we're made of to, to the energy that drives the expansion of the universe, all of that stuff, you know, comes from these questions that he encourages us to ask.
0: Absolutely. And I think
1: that's his single biggest contribution. And and he will be sorely missed. To say nothing of the fact that he's a huge, you know, popular science and public you know, he was in the Simpsons. He'd he turned up in Star Trek. He turned up in the Big Bang Theory a few times. This guy was very aware that he had a brand, that he had awareness, and he used mm-hmm. it to advocate for what he believed, for his education of people and for this outreach he did, and and he will be sorely missed.
0: Absolutely. Well, Paul, uh, moving on to uh, the subject at hand, as it were, uh, I'd like to start where we left off the last time we got together. Uh, and at that point, uh, we were going to get you to take us on an audio tour of the solar system, right? Uh, so, going from closest to farthest from the sun, why don't we begin that with that enigmatic body? known as Mercury.
1: Sure. And Mercury has a special place in my heart because Mercury was the uh, the planet that I studied for my first postdoctoral fellowship at the Carnegie Institution of in Washington. I was involved in NASA's messenger mission to Mercury. It was the first spacecraft to ever orbit the planet Mercury. we visited Mercury with Mariner 10, which NASA dispatched in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. But Mariner 10 was never able to make orbit of Mercury. It, it remained in orbit of the sun and it happened through three th- flybys of Mercury to only image the same half each time. So although Mariner 10 opened our eyes to what Mercury possessed, we only saw half of the planet. So Messenger really kind of showed us the whole planet and started enabling us to answer, to ask fundamental questions and begin to answer some of them. Uh, Mercury is an enigma. Mercury is not very much bigger than the Moon, it's smaller than Mars, so that makes it the smallest of the 4 inner inter-terrestrial planets that mm-hmm. include Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. Yeah. It is an enigma because it has an abnormally large iron core. So we know that Earth has an iron core, it has a liquid outer iron core, and the movement of that core is what's driving our magnetic field today, and it has a solid inner core. Um, we suspect that Venus probably has the same, although Venus does not have a magnetic field. Mars has presumably a core, we're going to find out later this year at NASA's InSight mission, we'll come back to that. Okay. So it wasn't surprising to find that Mercury has a core. What is surprising is that the core occupies most of the volume of Mercury. So on Earth, for example, the core-mantle boundary, the the boundary between the solid rocky portion of Earth and the outer core is thousands of miles below our feet, thousands of miles. In the case of Mercury, the core-mantle boundary is about 250 miles under your feet. So the entire crust and mantle together is about 420 kilometers or so, about 250, 260 miles. It's not clear why it would have such a huge core and such a thin mantle. There are two leading hypotheses. One is that... It happened to grow that way, that in the protosolar cloud, there was just a lot of iron, relatively little silicate material. That raises issues with chemistry and the conditions, the reducing conditions that were present in that part of the cloud very early on. So there's some problems with that idea. The other idea, which is arguably more appealing to people like me, is that a gigantic impact very, very early on hit Mercury and stripped away most of what was a much larger mantle took that material away, blasted it into oblivion, and when it re-accreted, it was left with much less rock, and therefore that's why its mantle is so thin. There are predictions that come out of that idea, which we went to Mercury to test. We found stuff that contradicts that model. It could be the model could be improved to account for those new observations. The, The short answer is we don't know why Mercury has such a thin mantle, but it does. This means that although it's much smaller than Mars, it has the same surface gravity as Mars, because it's got a much bigger iron core. I tell my students you can visualize Mercury as a giant molten ball bearing Flying in space with a thin blanket of rock,
0: uh, as you as you've put it, a ball of fire wrapped in rock.
1: It's essentially what Mercury is, yeah, yeah. And, and it really does stand aside, stand apart from the other terrestrial planets in the solar system.
0: So you you mentioned that there is another uh, visit planned. Tell us a little bit more right. about that.
1: Right. So later this year, knock on wood, the European Space Agency is going to launch uh, the joint ESA-JAXA, Japanese Space Agency, mission, BEPI-Colombo. And BEPI-Colombo is a dual spacecraft mission. It's much bigger and more capable than MESSENGER. And the idea of BEPI is that it's going to make orbit of Mercury. Now, it will take approximately seven and a half years to get there. There are real issues getting to Mercury. And I think we touched off these the last day. Mercury is very deep in the sun's gravity well. Yeah. That means that when you are moving toward gravity, you're essentially freely falling into the sun. So you need either a very powerful engine, which costs, takes weight and therefore costs money, or you take a very protracted journey by visiting, in the case of Messenger, it visited Earth once, Venus twice, and Mercury three times, slowing down at each encounter until it was going sufficiently slowly so as to be captured by Mercury's gravity on the fourth encounter. Mm -hmm. Bepi will take a a similarly tortuous journey because although it's bigger, it's got a larger engine, it still takes a very long time to get to Mercury if you want to slow enough to be captured by Mercury because otherwise you'll just shoot right past going to the Sun. Sure. Um, So BEPI will take about seven and a half years there but it's going to have two spacecraft in contrast to Messengers 1. It will have the Mercury planetary orbiter which will fly relatively close to the planet's surface and unlike Messenger there are real issues with operating at Mercury. There's a lot of energy from the Sun, it's hot, there's also a lot of reflected energy from the surface of Mercury. So it's a hostile environment for spacecraft electronics. As a result, Messenger had what we call a highly eccentric orbit. It had a very elliptical shaped orbit. It came close to the surface. Um, as close as 200 kilometres sometimes, but then would go as far away as 5,000 kilometres. And I do that three times a day. Bepi will be closer, it'll be less elliptical. That means it may not last as long, but it will get better measurements of the southern hemisphere of Mercury, which Messenger did not get, because Messenger, by necessity, had to go far out to, to cool down. Now in going far away from Mercury Messenger was also able to take uh, broader images and, and measurements of the magnetosphere um, the exosphere of the planet its interaction with the solar wind mm-hmm. to do that BEPI will have a second spacecraft called the Mercury Magnetosphere Orbiter and this MMO spacecraft will op- operate at a much greater distance from Mercury than the MPO the planetary orbiter these two spacecraft are going to be bundled together in an ion engine drive a solar electric drive and this whole stack will be launched in I think October the launch window opens in October this year okay. and hopefully we'll get there in about seven and a half years. Bepi will follow on and take more detailed and more sophisticated, more comprehensive measurements. But it is going there standing on the shoulder of Messenger because Messenger was the one that really helped us understand the basics of this planet and helped frame the questions that Beppy is going to hopefully address.
0: Uh, well, obviously you, you have a passionate interest in this since you did work on the messenger I have vested
1: interest. Mission. And for a very long time, it was you know it's very hard to study Mercury. It's deep in the sun's gravity well, so we can't easily get a spacecraft there. And it's so close to the sun that you cannot safely point a large telescope there. So Hubble, for example, has never been used, well, cannot, mm-hmm. nor can Webb, the, the successor to, to Hubble, yeah. to be used to study Mercury. So for a very long time, despite the difficulties in, in successfully getting to Mars, despite the difficulties in getting something onto the surface of Venus, they're relatively easier to get to and relatively easier to operate at than Mercury. So for a very long time, we didn't know that much about Mercury, which really was a huge gap in our understanding. So I have a particular fe- feel, uh, you know, affection for this thing um, by virtue of the fact that it, until recently, has been fairly, un- uh, you know, not particularly well understood. Exactly. We're getting there. We're beginning to fill in the gaps now. And that's important.
0: Well, stay, stay tuned. In about uh, roughly eight years, we should we, we should, should have more <laughs> stuff, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, now we come to the planet, uh, Paul, that you have referred to as Earth's sister planet, but not really our twin planet. Exactly. Uh, Take us there, uh, Paul, and let's see what Venus has to offer.
1: So Venus is is a fabulous world, and I did not, consciously not study Venus very much until recently. I've begun to get more involved with colleagues in studying Venus geology and Venus science, and part of the reason is it's really hard to study. You cannot see the surface of Venus from space, unlike these other worlds, because it has a really thick atmosphere that's dominated by carbon dioxide, a little bit of nitrogen there, but it's a mainly CO2 atmosphere. Mm -hmm. This means that it is essentially, the clouds are opaque. There are certainly for any visible spectrum, you know, we cannot point a camera at the surface of Venus. We can only see the clouds. So to see the surface, we have to use radar. And for a long time, people were using radio telescopes on Earth to bounce radio signals off the surface of Venus and get some idea of what was there. But it was really with NASA's Magellan mission in 1989, it made there in 1989, operated there for about four years. And Magellan gave us global coverage with radar data of what the surface looks like. And it looks nothing like Earth. What's strange about Venus is that it's 90% the mass of Earth, presumably made of the same stuff. It comes from the same parent star. They're about the same age. Mm-hmm. And it is nothing like what we look like. Yeah. And there's, there's some telling indicators in the atmosphere composition and on the surface that might explain why, but it's just this working model. We don't definitively know this to be true. It is, there are chemical signatures in the atmosphere that suggest that Venus used to have a lot more water than it does now. And it stands to reason that we're beginning to learn separately in general that planetary bodies probably have more water than we thought they did. It, it, it now looks like the moon has a lot of water locked into its mineral crystals at depth, right? It, it's dry on the surface, but it might be relatively wet at depth. This is, mm-hmm. the, we're evolving these views of how, of how much water planets get born with. So if Venus did get born in water, it certainly has almost nothing on the surface now, so it went somewhere. Yeah. It's also possible that, per these arguments, that Venus may even have had plate tectonics. There's no evidence that it does today, there's no evidence that it did. But what's really strange about Venus is that the surface is, the average surface age is about 700 million years. And this is weird because to a normal person, 700 million years is extremely old. That's, that predates complex multicellular life on Earth. However, most surfaces in the solar system that are not Earth are billions of years old. We know some of the oldest terrain in the solar system is on Mars, is on the Moon. Some of the oldest stuff on Mercury is over four billion years old. We don't see old terrain, I mean geologically old terrain on Venus, which tells us that something is acting to resurface and somehow cover up this, this old terrain and replacing it with new stuff. Volcanism is a really effective way, widespread, what we call plains volcanism, just enormous volumes of lava coursing over the surface. That's one way of doing it. Sure, but. The answer, the fact is we don't know where the older crust is and we don't know why it's missing. What it looks like is, within around 700 million years ago or so, something changed on Venus. Um, and one hy- hypothesis, one model we have, is that as the Sun gets older, it gets hotter. That's a function of how s- stars evolve. They're almost called the main sequence, which in our case our Sun is. And as it's converting hydrogen to helium, it happens to get hotter and brighter. As that happens, the surface temperature of Venus will increase. And it is thought that at some point within the last billion years, a trigger, a threshold was reached on Venus where water that may have been on the surface may even have had oceans and clouds and rivers and a hydrological cycle like we do today. This threshold was reached and suddenly water began uh, to be evaporated at a much greater rate than it had been. This leads to what's called a moist greenhouse effect, where suddenly the average surface temperature jumps to about 40 or 50 Celsius, which is way hotter than Earth right now. Our average surface temperature is about 20 Celsius. Mm -hmm. And what this means is you begin to evaporate water even faster, and you get to these really water-rich clouds which start to reflect some sunlight but trap a lot of other sunlight, and you enter ultimately what's called a runaway greenhouse effect. And if this happens, you can make the surface temperature jump up hugely, you evaporate all your water, suddenly you have made your surface bone dry, and critically... You've taken away that one critical ingredient we think is required for plate tectonics water. We think what dr- allows plates to subduct at subduction zones like the San Andreas area or down the Andes or mm. anywhere we have these subduction zones. Sure. We think that, that subduction is facilitated by the presence of liquid water. Okay. And if you lose liquid water, you might lock up these plates and you shut down plate subduction and ultimately plate tectonics. If that happens, suddenly you've no effective, plate tectonics is an extremely effective way of getting heat from the interior out to the surface through volcanism and through cooling the, the plates that are going down. If you stop that process, suddenly you start to heat the interior and it cannot get that heat out effectively. So you may end up having these catastrophic eruptions of lava, which will be burying the surface, removing this older terrain and making Venus look relatively youthful. If okay. that's true, it mm-hmm. means that Venus one day may once have had plate tectonics. And that really leads it to all kinds of issues. Was it habitable? Yeah. But something happened. We think possibly triggered by the increase in temperature of the sun that basically turned Venus into this hellish nightmare. The present-day conditions of the surface of Venus are awful. Think self-cleaning oven. That's the temperature <laughs> of the surface. And the yeah. pressure is about one kilometer under the sea. That's the current present-day temperature and pressure conditions of Venus. So that's
0: about 880 degrees Fahrenheit, right? It's
1: nothing we think can survive there. At least we, we don't know of anything. Even extremophiles don't survive on those temperatures and pressure conditions. And so that raises an yeah. issue. Venus is hellish today, but it may not always have been. And that's tantalizing. To, to say that we have fundamental questions on answer to Venus is to understate it. We don't explore Venus, I think, enough. We have some major questions. And one particular thing that ties to Venus is this. It is an Earth-sized planet, rocky planet, in the habitable zone of a very common type of star. As we discover these exostolar planets and we look for these other Earths, you could be mistaken if you were an alien astronomer looking in our solar system, you would see two Earth-sized habitable worlds, yet we know Venus is not. We should be studying Venus more because it will help us not only understand Venus or the potential future fate of Earth, but it will help us understand what characterizes rocky or Earth-like worlds in solar systems in general. Major questions yet to be answered for Venus.
0: You call it criminally underexplored.
1: Criminally underexplored. Seriously, (laughs) really, really got to do some cool stuff for Venus.
0: Well, Paul, now we we come to a planet that we're all a lot more familiar with, our own Mother Earth. You have a background in Earth geology as well as planetary geology. Excuse me. (coughs) What can you tell us about Earth in the context of its place in the solar system?
1: That's a great question and this, is, this comes back to what basically underpins a lot of my research and, and research of and planetary geologists in general. We employ a concept called comparative planetology and what that basically means is we take, many people start off studying Earth and we take what we understand of this world and we use that to understand other planets that we cannot easily visit or have not have any chance of visiting in the near term. What's really cool about comparative planetology is that it goes both ways, and it allows us to take what we know of these other worlds and apply it back to our planet. So for example, we see gigantic impact basins on the near surface, the near side of the Moon, the bit that faces us. We know there are similarly giant impact basins on Mars. We've now recognized similarly giant impact basins on Mercury. They're missing on Venus. For reasons we've just talked about, we think they've been buried, but they right. probably, they surely must have formed there. Mm-hmm. Because now we see planets that bracket Earth, that span the region in which Earth exists, have these gigantic impact basins. There are no giant impact basins on Earth. There's a few recognized basins. In fact, one of them is perhaps as much as 300 kilometers across, 180 miles or so. I'm not talking giant. That's not giant. I'm talking 1,000 kilometer diameter basins. They are gone on Earth because we have plate tectonics and we have hydrology and we have a bunch of other processes that obscure these things. And these things would have formed a very, very, very long time ago. But they surely must have formed on Earth. And the fact that we recognise them elsewhere in the inner solar system suggests they must have formed here. So that already tells us what Earth would have looked like way back when. We also understand, for example, plate tectonics. Earth is characterized in the modern era by plate tectonics. In fact, we know this process has been operating for probably at least two and a half billion years. But that means, because Earth is four and a half billion years old, that for a very long time, Earth did not have plate tectonics. It may have looked like Mars or like Venus. And we also know in the future, as the sun gets hotter, what I've just described may, ha- you know, may have happened to Venus is probably going to happen to Earth. As the sun continues to get hotter, and I'm not talking when it gets so big that it engulfs us, way before then, the sun is going to get sufficiently hot so as to burn off all our water. Now, somewhere between the next one or two billion years, we don't need to worry about this. We don't it, need to it, buy insurance. This not part. in the near term. There are much more <laughs> present <laughs> issues facing us. <laughs> Indeed. But what, ha- what that means is, in the future, Earth is going to lose plate tectonics, which means that for 50 or 60% of its total lifespan of perhaps of 10 billion years, this planet will not have had plate tectonics. Understanding how this process works and critically understanding why we don't see it on Mercury or on the Moon or on Mars or present day on Venus is key to understanding how it got made, how it got going and how it's going to end, particularly because a lot of people think that plate tectonics may play a critical role in making Earth habitable. And if we're fundamentally governed by the question of where else is there life and what do you need to get life going, understanding the role of plate tectonics in any planet's evolution is critical. That's how Earth and these other worlds will help us answer that question
0: i see well you mentioned uh, a moment ago the moon and we should not progress further with our tour before we're paying a quick visit to the moon absolutely Uh, what are the latest theories about its formation and its place in the solar system
1: so our our best understanding, we think, of how the Moon got made is that very early on within the, the life history of Earth, within, say, a few, perhaps 10 million years, which is geologically very, very short, yeah. it's thought, the leading hypothesis, that something about the size of Mars, which is informally known as Theia, hit Earth, hit the proto, the young infant Earth. Smashing it apart, the core, the central chunk of this impact, or Theia, went in and merged with our core, and a huge amount of debris was flung out. This debris formed first a ring— and then over time coalesced. It's now thought first into two or three separate small moons that then themselves accreted into what we now call the moon. And this explanation, which was invented decades ago, it, it, with computer, sophisticated computer modeling, we can begin to explore all the kind of consequences of this. It does a very good job explaining a bunch of things that are, that are independent, disparate observations. It, it accounts for why there's a unique chemical similarity between some of the rocks from the moon that we've returned from the Apollo mission, for example, and rocks we know on Earth. So that already tells us that these things probably had a shared origin because they got very similar chemical isotopes. It also explains the angular momentum inside the Earth-Moon system That's very difficult to explain if the moon, for example, had been captured by Earth, having formed someplace else. Um, There are other theories that suggest perhaps that the the fission idea that basically the moon and Earth kind of came apart from the same thing very early on. Mm -hmm. But we have other issues that those other challenges those hypotheses pose. The idea of what we call the giant impact hypothesis is the, the leading contender, I think, now to help us understand how the moon got formed. If that's true... It suggests that major impacts may play a a leading role in the evolution of most planets. This might dovetail back to the idea that Mercury very, very early on got whacked by something big. It might explain why Venus rotates on its axis backwards Compared, it orbits around the sun the same way everyone th- everyone else does, but it rotates backwards. Now, wow. There are some models that suggest it may just naturally have happened that way. That's okay, but there are other models that suggest that a giant impact would be enough to reset it and get it spinning the wrong way. And there's also the possibility, which Mars, which we'll go to in a moment, may also have experienced a gigantic impact early on. So. It's not, in, in and of itself, none of these findings are, are conclusive proof, but they do kind of suggest that the very early phases of planet's life in general might feature catastrophic impacts, which in the, our case produced the moon.
0: Uh, it sounds like a very chaotic system. I think it is, and, and we, have, we have
1: other chemical data too, from meteorites, for example, in particular, that suggests that very early on, stuff formed really fast. Within a few, perhaps, hundred thousand years, there were rocky things forming, and many of them were then blasted apart again. So it looks like Certainly from our current thinking that this chaotic phase wasn't very long-lived. But whilst it was there, it was really chaotic. And there might have been some spectacular (laughs) impacts happening.
0: Apparently so. Well, uh, Paul, as we venture out to more distance from the sun, let's uh, visit Mars, as you uh, just alluded to, uh, a planet that may someday see humans on the surface. Uh, I understand that interest in uh, missions to Mars has heralded in, in a new golden age of NASA exploration, whether we send a human there in the foreseeable future or not.
1: That's absolutely right. Mars has captured our imagination for hundreds, thousands of years. It features in mythology and, and cultures all over the world. Sure. Um, but Mars lately has really captured our imagination because we're realizing things that we didn't appreciate before. So. And I've learned this, you know, professionally through kind of me- going to pe- you know, places and meeting with folks. And I've realized, I've learned that for a very long time, Mars really w- wasn't given that much consideration. Um, it, it, the tantalizing possibility existed decades ago that maybe there was life on the surface. And NASA sent two probes, the Viking landers with the Viking orbiters in the 70s, to basically go and sample the soil to determine if there was any evidence of either organic matter or any of the other conditions that we think are required for life. Life as we know it. I'll put an underline under that and we'll come back to that later. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the two Viking probes which landed in two different parts of Mars did not find soil that was in any way that could accompany or accommodate life and so that sort of put paid to the idea of Mars as sort of an abode for life we knew in the, in the 60s and we began to send these probes to Mars and Mariner probes in the in the 70s there were no giant cities the canals that had been reported <laughs> did not exist right. so we, we weren't really expecting you know, what we'd saw in, in Pulp Fiction from the 20s and 30s right? that there was you know big vegetation and these long li- you know, limbed Martians we knew that wasn't going to be the case but maybe there was microbial no, no life no little green men no little <laughs> or big green men no but maybe there was you know little green microbial life and, sure. and Viking said no. And so for a while, attention turned away from Mars. And then there was the discovery of ALH 84001, which is a meteorite recovered from Antarctica from the Allen Hills site in 1984. In the early 90s, there was the dramatic announcement that the possibility existed that in one of these samples, there was what looked like fossilized microbial life. From a Martian meteorite. A meteorite found on Earth, but known to be from Mars because it had pockets of gas inside that match exactly the composition that the Viking landers told us the atmosphere of Mars is made of. Mm -hmm. And if you Google this, it looks like a fossilized microbe. If you've seen the movie Contact, that movie features Bill Clinton cut out from real press releases and put into the context of that movie. And in these press releases that he really features he talks about how this is a major discovery and we're going to have to monitor it carefully. He was talking about the ALH 84001 discovery, this potential discovery of fossilized alien microbial life in a meteorite. My understanding is today, generally the consensus is that it is an, an abiogenic thing. It's not life. However the discovery of that meteorite and that thing in that meteorite began to engender a renewed interest in looking for life on Mars. And that led to, in 19, in the mid-1990s, to the Sojourner mission, which was this thing not much bigger than a shoebox, the first lander that was driving around Mars. And that directly led as, a, as essentially a Pathfinder mission for Spirit and Opportunity, which landed in, 19, in 2004, mm-hmm. both of which were designed to last something like 90 Mars days, one of which is still going 14 years later. I mean, it's driving backwards, but it's amazingly rugged. Yeah. So we lost Spirit about 10 years ago, but Opportunity is still going. And that, in turn, facilitated facilitated ESA's Mars Express mission, the Mars Orbiter, the Mars Global Surveyor, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter currently operating in in Martian orbit right now, MRO has a camera that can resolve the rovers on the surface from orbit.
0: Wow. Amazing
1: (laughs) technology. Um, You know, Mars uh, Trace Gas Orbiter that ESA has deployed to Mars. We have uh, Curiosity launched in twenty or landed in 2012. This is a you know a, a, a rover the size of a Mini Cooper, nuclear powered, driving across the surface of Mars. The there has been a renewed focus, and and, and and I guess the search for potential habitable conditions is what's been driving the search for life on Mars in the last 20 years. The mantra is follow the water. And that, coupled with new observations from orbit of what looked to be hydrated uh, minerals—minerals that look like they have been in contact with water—which is a big thing because it suggests there might be water today on Mars—the role water has played in the formation of you know valley networks we see all across the southern hemisphere of that planet, giant outflow channels bigger than anything we see on Earth—that suggests that at least for a time there may have been fundamentally different climatic conditions on Mars. What we call the warm and wet model—that very early on Mars had a surface atmosphere, a surface pressure at least as great as what we have today, that the temperature was much higher than it is today. Right now, it's minus 50 Celsius as of the average surface temperature of Mars. The pressure is six millibars. And wherever you're sitting listening to this, your pressure is about a thousand millibars. So it's almost a vacuum. One of the, the single biggest downsides to the film The Martian, which I loved, <laughs> is there is no way there could ever be a storm of that intensity that could fling Matt Damon anywhere on Mars. The atmosphere just isn't sufficient for that. But it's possible three or four billion years ago, Mars may have had a much thicker atmosphere. And if it had a much thicker atmosphere, it would allow liquid water to survive. It cannot survive in liquid form today. It could have billions of years ago. And if you have liquid water on the surface, on a world like Mars, you may have had life. That's what's governing this drive, this search to to look for evidence of past habitable conditions on Mars.
0: Uh, But obviously, no no definitive results yet.
1: No definitive results as yet. There is a plan that is being gestated right now. It's an expensive plan to see to fruition, to return samples from Mars to Earth laboratories. The Curiosity rover can do amazingly advanced things, but it cannot ha- hold a candle to the techniques we have in labs on Earth. I mean, that's just, that was one of the fundamental science goals for the Apollo mission was to return these rock samples. Yeah. Um, if we are able to, in the next two or three uh, decades, return samples from Mars to Earth and, and keep them here for a hundred years and, and, and apply to them all of the techni- techniques we have today, plus those we'll develop in the future. We may be able to have, we will have, definitively, a much better understanding of Mars's early history, its composition, its interior structure, its climatic history, all that's recorded in its rocks. That will help us understand if it was once habitable. The idea of a warm early Mars is not universally agreed upon. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we will be able to actually recognise extant life is a huge question to say nothing of the fact that we still, for good reasons, only look for life that we will recognise. Which means if there's some other kind of weird alien life that does not operate as it does in this world, we will miss it because we won't know what to look for. And and that's okay. We have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. The question of life on Mars, whether present today, uh, maybe hundreds of meters underground, or may have existed on the surface four billion years ago, that's going to remain an open question for a lot longer. However, everything we learn about Mars, regarding its life or not, is going to be useful for us to understand what what it's going to take for us to live on Mars, for us to terraform Mars or simply live in habitats because I agree with Elon Musk in this regard. We need to become more than a one planet species and I think long term, hundreds to thousands of years and most people don't think in those time frames, it is useful for us to learn how to operate off world, how to get onto other places and live and farm and survive and thrive off world. All of this research for Mars, that's not its primary goal but all of it will be in support of our understanding of what it will take to live and thrive on Mars.
0: Well now, Paul, we come to the Jovian or Jupiter like planets, uh, starting, oddly enough, with the giant
1: Jupiter. So Jupiter is a magnificent world. It is three hundred and eighteen times the mass of Earth. It is just organ- if you look in terms of mass, the solar system consists of the sun and Jupiter. It has, it's a mixed blessing. Jupiter, we think, plays a huge role as a giant gravity well in attracting things that might otherwise potentially hit us. has also, we think, has played a role early on at least in migrating through the solar system, migrating from where it is now, which in turn may have destabilized, for example, the asteroid belt and actually caused stuff to hit us. Right. So it's, you know, it's a mixed blessing. Mm-hmm. But Jupiter is an amazing world for a number of reasons. We think it, it's the biggest planet in the solar system. It's not just the most massive, it's also many times the diameter of Earth. We think it's dominantly made of helium and hydrogen gas, so it's essentially what we call a gas giant, a gas planet. Sure, There is an open question as to whether or not there is a rocky interior. The pressures at the center of Jupiter are going to be, are going, surely so high, we don't know what rock will do under those conditions, because rock is not normally exposed to those pressures. But certainly, we are learning a great deal more about Jupiter right now thanks to NASA's Juno mission, which has operated there for coming up on two years. Juno mission, the Juno mission is this gigantic spacecraft, three huge solar panels, and it is flying, it kind of looping, again, eccentric orbits close to and then far from Jupiter. And it has an array of instruments that are basically probing the interior structure of Jupiter in terms of the composition of the clouds, how deep they go, the magnetic field, the interactions with the cloud patterns we're seeing. Mm -hmm. It looks like some of the cloud bands we see on Jupiter are are, are extending thousands of kilometers into the planet's interior. We're understanding the, the energy balance of these clouds and how, how long the storms we see there last for. Of course, the very famous storm on Jupiter is the giant red spot, the great red spot. Yeah. We know the great red spot is, is shrinking and it's been shrinking for about 300 years slowly, which is not surprising because it is essentially, it's an anti-cyclone. Right? We expect these things to ultimately dissipate, but it is so big you can easily fit four or five Earths into the, the surface area of this storm. But we're, we're learning so much about Jupiter, but critically, We're recognizing worlds like this in other solar systems as well. In fact, Jupiter-sized planets and bigger are the easiest to detect because of the various methods we use to detect exosolar planets, you're going to pick the big ones up first. And so we find a lot of these worlds, and and indeed much bigger than Jupiter, and that is really instructive in our understanding of how these things form and how common they are. What is a conundrum right now is that Jupiter is located about halfway, if you like, not geographically halfway, it's about five times the distance from the sun as Earth is. But if you look at the, the the eight recognized, currently recognized planets, there's the four inner rocky ones, there's the four gas ones that go farther out. Mm-hmm. And Jupiter's sort of in the middle. And the thinking for that has been that it's pretty much just beyond what we call the ice line or the frost line. So a distance from a star where essentially water ice can form and and be retained without being evaporated by the energy from that sun. We think Jupiter's at that sweet spot where it was close enough to have some rocky stuff that might have formed the core of Jupiter, but far enough away that it could retain a thick, gaseous atmosphere without the sun essentially evaporating that atmosphere away. That's why we think Jupiter is where it is and why it's so big. What's paradoxical about this is that most, not all, most of the large Jupiter planets we've seen in other solar systems are really, really close to their sun. They're much, much closer than Mercury is. Mercury is about half the distance from the Sun as Earth is. These things are are 10 times closer again, orbiting in only a few hours in some cases. So we have no understanding. Either do you form a huge gaseous world that close to the Sun, or do they form farther out and migrate in? So that's an open question we haven't answered. But what we have discovered is that although Jupiter-like planets are very common, most of the ones we've detected so far are way, way closer to their parent star than our one is. That's a question that we haven't yet answered. but it is a tantalizing one because it tells us all about the potential processes that influence the solar system.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jupiter also has... Some some pretty intriguing
1: moons, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, you can consider particularly Jupiter and Saturn, you can almost treat them as their own mini solar systems. And In fact, we think they have this large array of moons, some of which are weird, irregularly shaped nuggets, but many of which have pulled themselves into a round ball under their own gravity. We call that hydrostatic equilibrium, but it basically means these things are worlds unto themselves. Sure. And in the case of Jupiter in particular, it has at least one world, Ganymede, that's bigger than Mercury. In fact, Ganymede is the only moon that has a modern-day magnetic field. Mercury has a magnetic field, present-day magnetic field. Earth has a present-day magnetic field, and so does Ganymede. Ganymede is a little bit bigger than Mercury. Um, the only reason we call it a moon is because it happens to orbit Jupiter. If for some reason it had formed someplace else, it would be a bona fide planet unto itself. Um, it's a fascinating world. We don't know that much about. The Voyager spacecraft visited the Jovian system in the 80s. The Galileo mission operated, did a grand tour of the Jovian system from about 97 to 2003 or so. So it was essentially the forerunner of the Cassini mission, which recently finished up in Saturn. Um, and, and that gave us some basis to ask fundamental questions. It told us the basics, how big these things are what their likely composition is. But we have so much more to understand for these worlds that 's why Juno, Juno right now is visiting Jupiter. The European Space Agency is developing a mission called Juice, which is going to visit Jupiter and do a grand tour and My understanding is that the the latter part of the juice mission now this is in well into the 2030s is going to set up orbit around Ganymede and and particularly you know focus on that world in particular. Um, Ganymede is an amazing world. It's got this magnetic field. It has a rocky interior. But its outer surface is made of ice. It's frozen water ice. It's made this thick ice shell that shows all kinds of strange you know, geological features. And we think there's a liquid water ocean underneath that shell. In fact, one model suggests there's a thick ocean. Another is that there's actually layers of ice and water in this sort of weird sandwich layer. But what we do know is that the combined thickness or depth of this ocean is 800 kilometers Wow. That's 500 miles. The average ocean depth on Earth is fi- is three miles, five yeah. kilometers. Yeah. And this thing is 500 miles deep. On a moon, you know, bigger than Mercury. These are tantalizing, exciting worlds. And Jupiter also, of course, has uh, Io, which is the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Its volcanism is not driven by heat the way it is in these inner solar system worlds. It's driven by squeezing between uh, Jupiter and these other moons. It has Europa, a mission, that, uh, a planet right now that is a, a focus of substantial study for NASA. NASA is developing a mission called Europa Clipper, which we think will launch in 2024. Europa has the tantalizing prospect of not only an, an, an ocean, a liquid water ocean, underneath its ice shell, it may even have life inside that ocean. And understanding the conditions and and how thick that ice shell is, how thick that water is, whether the water is warm, is it convecting? They're fundamental questions that will help us understand whether or not these worlds may house life. And if Europa might, then so too might these other icy satellites orbiting Jupiter and Saturn. So an amazing place worth of, you know, a mini solar system unto itself.
0: Absolutely. Well, take us to Saturn.
1: So Saturn is the next biggest Planet in the solar system. It's the second of the two gas giants before mm-hmm. we get to the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. It's about twice as far away from the sun as Jupiter. Is. So already you're kind of getting this big, you know, exaggerated or uh, extended distance from the sun. Sure. But Saturn is, is a beautiful planet, it's the ringed planet. One of the things we've learned recently is that some of these rings may be relatively recent. An an open question for a long time was were these rings formed way back when the planet formed or are they geologically recent, perhaps a few hundred million years? It now looks like the preliminary answer to that question is that these rings might be recent, which means we are fortuitous to have evolved in an epoch in the universe in which this planet has these beautiful ring system. Um, If you take the rings away, Saturn is a fairly nondescript world. It does not have the attractive bands that characterize the atmosphere of Jupiter. And so as a result, on the face of it, it's not that interesting a place. It is for a pile of reasons, but it doesn't have the, kind of a, the immediate attraction or the giant spot that Jupiter has. Mm-hmm. But Saturn has its own mini solar system as well. And one of the most interesting bodies in the solar system orbits Saturn, a world called Titan. Titan, again, is also bigger than Mercury. Titan is a monstrous moon. Um, but it has a thick methane smoggy hydrocarbon rich atmosphere which like venus means we cannot see the surface of titan we need to use radar we cannot use regular cameras to see and the cassini mission which reached saturn in in, um, 2004 after launching in 1997 cassini carried on on board a radar and it orbited the saturn planet itself but it, it did all these flybys of these other moons and showed us Titan to be an amazingly weird place. It also carried the Huygens probe which it it landed. It left the the Cassini spacecraft. Huygens uh, descended through the the, the Titan atmosphere taking images and measurements of the the clouds and the composition of the air and then eventually settled down and landed on the surface and showed us this, this field of strewn with these rounded boulders which we know are made of water ice. The upper surface of Titan is this ice shell again this frozen ice shell and the temperatures of this part of the solar system are such that ice is almost as strong as granite there. So you're talking about a solid you know, all but you know, rock and all but name. Yeah. But what's amazing about Titan is that it has a thick atmosphere. It has this icy outer shell. It has a modern day hydrological cycle. Now we sometimes refer to it as a methanological cycle because methane is the fluid agent. It's so cold; it cannot be liquid water. Water is frozen at these temperatures. Yeah. But methane or methane is a is a fluid. It has river channels. It has lakes. It has all the catchment features you see in river riverine systems and the systems on Earth. It rains. it it rains solid methane. I mean, this is an amazing world. This is all on the ice shell. That ice shell is a few tens of kilometers thick. Underneath that is a gigantic liquid water ocean. And below that again, is a rocky interior where there may be stuff at hydrothermal vents. Titan has two potential ecosystems or biosystems that could be operating there. It is an amazingly tantalizing world, difficult to study, but right now NASA is considering new missions to even visit Titan specifically because it's possible that Titan has some aspect of its chemistry that is similar to the what we call the prebiotic chemistry on Earth before life became, a thing, uh, became established on Earth. That raises the tantalizing pr- uh, prospect, again, coming back to comparative planetology, that Titan might give us a, even a glimpse of what the conditions were like on Earth way, way back when. So it's a world hugely important to us to understand. And that's before you get to Enceladus, another world we think may have stuff happening in its sea. It has these you know jets of, of water coming out the South Pole or Dione or Tethys or Rhea or these other weird-looking Iapetus with this weird ridge. Many solar systems unto its own right. The Cassini mission dramatically opened our eyes to both how rings develop and evolve, how a planet like Saturn gets going, and how this uh, moon system gets established. Um, Cassini did its swan song in September 2017. It crashed into the atmosphere, and in doing so returned useful data of the atmosphere that was never intended to take in the first place. But all of these missions... Always answer a few questions and give us more to ask. Sure. So we have to go back.
0: They're they're hypothesis generating. That's exactly what they do, yes. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: Well, uh, Paul, we are getting progressively uh, farther out from the the sun and from the earth uh, as now we visit Uranus. Uh, what do we know about that distant planet?
1: So it turns out we don't know very much. We've only visited Uranus and Neptune briefly with the Voyager 2 probe when it did its grand tour. When it was launched, there happened to be a particular alignment of planets that allowed a relatively modest spacecraft with a relatively small engine and fuel tank to be able to use gravity assists to visit these worlds. You can visit Uranus any anytime, but you need an often cost-prohibitive engine and basically mass equals dollars in terms of launching this stuff. So Voyager was just particularly well positioned to be able to visit all these worlds and that's why we haven't gone back to Uranus and Neptune since. They're extremely expensive. Even getting a relatively simple spacecraft with very simple instruments there might cost two to three billion dollars. So it it has been essentially cost prohibitive. Mm -hmm. But we've been lucky and we can sort of use things a little bit remotely with telescopes and the new James Webb telescope which hopefully will launch a schedule next year. Webb will be able to give us new Observations of these worlds, not uh, nearly like the resolution you'd get with a, spa- a visiting spacecraft, but better than nothing. Sure. But Voyager 2 is really what we know of these worlds. And, and Uranus is an amazing planet. On the face of it, um, in fact, we could almost treat Uranus and Neptune together because we visited them with this spacecraft you know, very close in time. They're both sort of bluey-hinged. Uh, Uranus is more kind of a bluey-green color, Neptune is a deep blue color. They have banding in their atmosphere that suggests there are storms, but nothing. they're closer to how Saturn looks insofar as its atmospheric structure, nothing like the dramatic banding you see in Jupiter. They both have moon systems. Some of the moons of Uranus in particular are fascinating, but because the Voyager spacecraft, Voyager 2, was never designed and wasn't able to orbit, it simply did a fly past, which means whatever moons you happen to see in that part of space as you go past, you happen to image. It only imaged, in some cases, only some portions of these moons, these moon systems. It did tell us that Uranus has a ring system, but it's a very immature ring system. It's not nearly as well developed as say the, the Saturnian system rings. But even its own worlds look to be fascinating. There's a world called Miranda, which for a while we thought might actually have broken apart and come back together. Now we think the weird structures on its surface might reflect interior processes. But these worlds are bizarre, and 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 other potential ocean worlds where there could be, you know, conditions. Protect, potentially conducive to life and habitability inside these worlds. Um, same with Neptune. Neptune is, is, is just as interesting. One of the big things that separates Neptune from these other worlds, Neptune has one gigantic moon relative to the other moons, and it's got a few other smaller ones that we don't really care that much about. The giant moon that Neptune has is called Triton. Mm-hmm. Voyager 2 imaged Triton again when it, when it flew past in 1989.
0: And, and what is odd about Triton? Triton is very
1: odd <laughs> for two reasons. One, it has almost no impact craters on the chunk of the surface we saw we did not see all of Triton, but we imaged some part of the surface, it has almost no impact craters. And since, like I alluded to earlier in, in, in this discussion, craters suggest, the more craters you have, it suggests that you the older you are, because you've been exposed to a record of cratering for longer. It sure. doesn't always hold, but generally that's sort of uh, kind of an underlying principle for this. If you have very few craters... Sure, there's probably less stuff to whack you farther out in the in, in the outer solar system. That's true, but there should still be more than only a few. And what that means is something is acting to remove those older craters, right? We sometimes call that a crater retention age. All it means is if you've got relatively few craters where you expect more, something has acted geologically to resurface them or to remove them, which means it's geologically active. Now it may not be active today, but it has been active more recently than this earlier period of bombardment. And that's surprising because our kind of conventional wisdom had been these worlds this small. Triton's pretty big, but it's it's not a planet that these things should have burnt out of their internal energy very early on and shouldn't be active anymore, and yet that's not the case for, for, for Triton. In fact, we even see what look to be streaks of, of, of jets of material evaporating and, and you know, active. It's almost a form of what we call cryovolcanism on the surface of Titan. These things were observed to be happening during the flyby in 1989. If they operated in 89, they sure operate today. So how is a body this old active today. That's an outstanding question. And we also, what is really strange about Triton is that it orbits the wrong way around Neptune than the other moons do. And and that tells us, Triton, Mm -hmm. there's a very, very good chance that Triton was not made as a moon of Neptune. We think, in fact, Triton comes from what we call the Kuiper Belt, which is this region of the solar system way, way out beyond Neptune. And we think that for whatever reason, gravitational perturbations, you name it, something nudged Triton from where it was born out in the Kuiper Belt. It came into the, relatively speaking, closer part of the outer solar system, was captured by Neptune, and in doing so, disturbed the gravitational orbits of the o- many of the other moons of Neptune, and then basically drove those moons into Neptune, which were then destroyed, mm-hmm. leaving behind a few moons and this giant one going the wrong way around the body. Um, that observation now, suggests I, that it was captured from someplace else.
0: I noticed though that I, I had it in my notes that it, it orbits the wrong way well, what exactly does that mean?
1: If we, basically what it means is that it's, it's very hard to explain why it would do that if it formed in situ, if it formed around you know, because as we consider Jupiter and Saturn and, and Uranus and Neptune as almost like mini solar systems, mm-hmm. we think their moons formed when the planets did, unlike Earth in which case, you know, something hit Earth and split off this chunk that became the moon it stands to reason that everything should go the same way because it's gravitationally and, and dynamically easiest to explain. Okay. The fact that this thing came in the way it did provides good evidence. It's also much bigger than the other moons, which is also difficult to explain the partitioning of mass, but particularly its, its angular momentum, its distance from the body and the way it orbits suggests. The easiest way to explain that is that it came from someplace else. It happened to have its own trajectory and was captured by Neptune, and in doing so it disrupted the existing moons at Neptune. That's cool because it tells us, first off, this can happen, right? that a planet can capture something from farther afield and and, and then hang on to it. It also tells us that this is what bodies in the Kuiper Belt might look like. We've only visited one other Kuiper Belt object, Pluto. Uh, It's very hard to get the Kuiper Belt. The New Horizons mission was launched to Pluto in January 2006, and it made It flew past Pluto, and then the closest approach took three hours, but it took nine years to get to Pluto. That's how far away the Kuiper (laughs) Belt is. So if we can go back to, say, Neptune, for example, and visit Triton, we have the possibility then of basically visiting a Kuiper Belt object without the it added expense of actually getting to the Kuiper Belt, so that's that's one of the really useful things that that, that that Triton offers us. But as I said, beyond Voyager two, we have not gone back to either Uranus or Neptune because it is essentially too expensive. It's too hard with the, with the available money NASA has for these kinds of missions, and so we may be looking at another few decades, perhaps unfortunately, before we go back to these worlds.
0: Indeed, well, Paul, what uh, what about the mysterious so-called Planet Nine? which is way, way out there, uh, and has never actually been seen
1: yet. Right, and, and depending on, I guess, the journal article you read at the given time, there might be several candidates for the so-called Planet Nine, bearing in mind that Planet Nine was Pluto, and in 2006 the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, decided to demote Pluto yeah. to dwarf status, which yeah. is a different conversation
0: Subject of continuing I, controversy. It absolutely
1: is, and I don't <laughs> think it was the right move in my view, but that notwithstanding, this, there is an idea, there has been a kind of a tantalizing idea for a long time, there might be something, basically farther out in the deep, deep parts of the solar system, way, way, way beyond, you know, out in the Kuiper belt or even beyond. Mm-hmm. It's not clear if there is, but there are observations that astronomers take that indicate either there could be something out there as, as a function of how things, the gravitational orbits of things are being disturbed. In fact, I think some of the outer planets were predicted as being there before they were actually observed by astronomers on the basis of the predicted effects they would have on, on, on the changing gravitational effects of things. And so it's possible that there, that there is something big out there. One thing we've definitely learned in the last few years is that the solar system is far more complicated than certainly what I learned as a kid yeah. 30 years ago, that there, there are d- different phases. In fact, some people are now proposing that rather than calling the outer solar system everything from Jupiter outwards, they now want to call that the middle solar system because we're now recognizing that there really is an outer solar system that starts at the Kuiper Belt goes to the scattered disk, and goes beyond that again to the Oort cloud, which is this hypothetical or hypothesized sphere where long period comets, comets that have a a period that returns them back to the solar system every 200 200 years or beyond. It's thought that some of these comets might, might come from the same region of space that we now kind of dub the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud, if it's true and really there, Extends almost a quarter of the way out to the next star system. So we're beginning to realize the gravitational influence of the sun extends way farther out than just where the planets are. Yeah. And this kind of makes us think maybe we should consider the outer planet, the outer solar system, to really mean this really distant part of the of the solar system.
0: I understand that there are uh, thought to be potentially seven more worlds in the in the so-called habitable zone.
1: Right, and so this gets to the issue that you know you might legitimately have objects out there that we have not directly imaged or seen that might legitimately be there that we, they're very, very hard to see because often we use reflected light from these things to recognize them. If these things are dark or very far away and there's not much light out there, they're really, really hard to detect. But With improved radio telescopes in particular, we're going to be able to survey this part of space more and more. And I think in the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to see dramatic new discoveries of worlds, and potentially even including these so-called planet 9 and 10 and 12. There may be dozens of large bodies out there that we have not even considered exploring yet.
0: Well, it's... it's Going to be some incredible discoveries over the next for sure. 10, 20 years. I, what the as last, long as the funding keeps that's coming. That's the
1: biggest issue. And what the last 20 or 30 years have told us is that whatever we thought we knew, we didn't. So Which means that whatever we think we know now is incomplete. Indeed.
0: Well, Paul, uh, it's, it's been an amazing hour. Uh, fascinating. Uh, you are such a wealth of information and, and great fun. Thanks so much for joining Thanks me so again My on pleasure. Radio In Vivo. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website radioinvivo.net or our Facebook site for the lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy the show, we also ask that you support the station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and make a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time around.